so please help me welcome John, Hector, Garnett, and Diego. Hi. Um, thanks for coming. Uh, I, I guess, does anybody want to know the Dodgers score? No? Yes. The uh, Dodgers are up 3-1 to one in the 7th. Um, so now that that's out of the way... Uh, <laughs> we can, um, yes. Yes. Uh, it's not cricket. Um, I thought I'd talk a little bit about what this issue's for, and um, it's actually more connected to the anthology that she just mentioned, Tales of Two Americas. Right now, 27 people in the United States um, have a net worth which is equal to roughly half of the United States. So tw 27 people could fit in these chairs, and their income is equal to half of the people that live in this, in this country. We, we live in an era of bewildering social inequality, economic inequality. Um, and simultaneously, in the literary world, we also live in, an, in a time of extreme nationalism. Um, even if you don't believe in things like the um, quote-unquote Muslim ban um, and some of the nationalistic rhetoric that's coming from this current government, only 3% of our books are translated um, in this country. And that's, that's, an, uh, that's a huge impoverishment, um, especially considering that the U.S. is more diverse than it's ever been um, in its history. And so there's a wealth of information in the lives and in the bodies of people around this country. Um, and there's a wealth of information and stories in the lives and bodies and the body of work of people outside this country. And so my hope was with these two anthologies <clears throat> is to put them together and to think that maybe what we could do is imagine what's right in front of us. Um, imagine the possibility of being another person and whether or not it's someone born across town um, whether than, rather than in your own home, as Hector does in his piece in, in Tales of Two Americas, in one of his earliest pieces in the LA Times. He writes about a, a, a tragically a, a young boy who was killed in a, a drive-by shooting who was the exact same age as his own son, living in a town very adjacent to the town that he and his family were living in. Um, and it's simultaneously, uh, Diego Enrique Osono um, is writing about uh, how a, a town in, in Mexico, which is the victim of some of the worst um, narco violence in, in all of Mexico, is trying to resurrect itself by hosting an attempt to build the world's largest shrimp cocktail uh, and win the, the Guinness World Book of Records um, for that attempt. Um, and so wh what these writers are doing um, is trying to cut through spectacle um, by watching and observing and thinking about uh, what's right in front of them. Um, in his piece, Garnett Cadigan is writing about growing up uh, in Jamaica in a difficult home um, and escaping into the twin heroes of uh, Bruce Lee and Charlie Brown. And in the course of this piece, he decides that neither of them is going to be his way out of this difficult home. It's going to be a third way, the trickster Anansi. Uh, and so uh, in, the, in the pieces of these three writers, um, we have uh, a crime story turned inside out. Um, we have a folk tale uh, turned inside out. Um, and we have a piece of municipal spectacle uh, turned inside out. And so across the pieces in this anthology, but more this one, um, I'm watching writers play with form and use, uh, whether it's nonfiction or poetry or fiction, use forms to get at 
uh, what's right in front of us. So I, I just wanted to give you that preamble um, before asking some questions of these guys. And since Diego has come the furthest, um, if you can't tell by his coffee, um, uh, <laughs> I, I want to ask you, um, and you, you can speak in a mixture of English and Spanish, and Hector will chip in. Um, what are the challenges to seeing and describing what is right in front of you in Mexico right now? Sí, ¿Cuál es el desafío ahora en, en escribir sobre la realidad mexicana, lo que, lo que ves ahora? ¿Cuál es el, ¿Cuáles son los desafíos? En, eso? Eh, en, en español voy a tener que hablar. Sorry, by my, my bad English. Eh, el principal problema que tenemos los narradores de la realidad mexicana es precisamente que estas historias, como la que viene en el libro, Uh, the hardest, the, the biggest challenge that we face as writers is that these stories that are so fantastic from our reality, trying to make them feel real. In Mexico, we have the problem that reality has more imagination than fiction. Yeah, the problem we have in Mexico is that reality has more imagination than fiction does. Entonces, nosotros escribimos de cosas eh, espeluznantes o tragicómicas como esta y mucha gente, eh, aún en México, porque México es un país muy desigual, es un país que tiene Beverly Hills, ciudades que son como Beverly Hills y ciudades que son como los países más pobres del mundo. Entonces, en el propio país hay, hay mexicanos que no conocen esta realidad. And the problem is that we write about things that are so terrifying and so frightening and so crazy. Um, and, and, that in, and because Mexico has so much inequality, there are people in Mexico who don't actually even know that these realities exist. Yo, yo creo que eh, ese es el, eh, el reto mayor. Obviamente, eh, toda esta situación es una oportunidad narrativa. Eh, yo, yo preferiría... Eh, eh, no tener esta oportunidad narrativa como persona. Uh, obviously that's the biggest challenge, but then all of this reality is uh, presents an opportunity uh, for us, a narrative opportunity. I personally would prefer not to have uh, that that opportunity. Mm. Hector, I wonder if um, you can talk about beginning as a reporter in in Los in, in Los Angeles. Um, y Hector is the author of two novels as well as two works of nonfiction, including Deep Down Dark, which is about the Chilean miners who were eventually rescued, um, which was a finalist for the National Book Critics Circle. Uh, but y you're, you're, this piece that you wrote for me is kind of like a, um, a B-side to a, a piece that you wrote for the LA Times, and I wonder if you can compare the two, what you were able to write as a reporter and what you gained, or what possibly more you could tell from the story by placing what happened next to your own life? Well, I think that when you're, um, you know, there's a professional melodrama factory, uh, you know, and we see it uh, in print. We used to see it in print more. Uh, now it's mostly on cable television. You know, that every time there's a mass shooting, there is an industry and a pattern of telling the story of the mass shooting, you know. And so I was part of that industry. That's where I got my training as a writer, was in this industry of melodrama. 
And, um, and, I, and, and it requires skill. You have to be able to write fast. You have to have great empathy skills. This is why Anderson Cooper is, uh, is, a, is a star, that he can, he can be intelligent, and then he can emote, and he can interview someone who has you know, lost somebody and, make it, and, and feel human. Right, and and you can you feel he's a human being, except for his hair that never moves, and so, uh, and so that's a skill as a writer too to be able to interview someone who's just lost a child, um, and have this empathy, and then later to be able to distance yourself and pull back, but it's really really draining on the soul, and you're just my biggest frustration as that kind of reporter was that I was just telling surface details of stories. And I, I feel now that mass shootings should only be covered by novelists. You know, it should only, it should be an army of novelists and short story writers and poets who should go and cover these mass shootings because the human, uh, the human complexity and the tragedy and the psychology of the, of the, of the characters, personalities involved in these shootings and of the politics is, is all so um, crazy. Like Diego was saying about, about Mexican reality. And so to me, um, the process of becoming a novelist has been the process of allowing myself to see all these different textures of reality within even the most melodramatic sort of events. Mm. And um, so, yeah, that, that to me is the, is the primary difference. Well, right now we're talking about violence, uh, actual uh, physical violence, um, rather than necessarily structural violence, like uh, poverty, um, the, the disempowerment of people based on who or what they are, um, the de- defunding of education. Um, I wonder, Diego, if you could speak about uh, the less um, flamboyant uh, types of violence that are existing, uh, ongoing in Mexico, which are adjacent to the physical forms of narco-violence. Wh- how much of your work is about the, the, the invisible violence? Yo... Yo investigué y escribí una biografía de Carlos Slim. Uh, I investigated and wrote a biography of Carlos Slim. Es uno de los hombres más ricos del mundo. En varios años ha sido más rico que Buffett, que Bill Gates, que Benzos. He's one of the richest men in the world. In various years, he's been more. Uh, he's been richer than uh, Buffett and Bezos and others. Yes. Eh, en un país donde hay 50 millones de personas que viven con menos de dos dólares al día. In a country where there are 50 million people who live with less than two dollars a day. Y eh, descubrí entre muchas otras cosas que eh, según incluso estudios oficiales de, de la OCDE. Eh, de la OCDE. OCDE. Mm. Eh, Slim. Eh, las prácticas monopólicas y abusivas de las empresas de Slim en México perjudicaron el bienestar del país mm-hmm. en 129 mil millones de dólares. Uh, according to some official studies, that Slim's monolo- monopolistic practices, his business practice, have cost Mexico. ¿Cuánto fue la cantidad? 129 mil millones de dólares. 129 billion dollars. Wow. Eso para mí. That for es, me. Es una masacre. Eso mató gente. It's a, it's a, it's a massacre. It's a mass killing. Pero es invisible. But it's invisible. Esa, esa violencia es la que a mí también me interesa mostrar. That violence is also what I'm interested in showing. En, el, en la historia esta que cuento, creo que lo que se refleja es la violencia cultural. Es, 
And in the story that I write, what you is is shown there is the cultural violence. Esa es otra violencia también cuando la sociedad asimila o normaliza las masacres. When uh, a society normalizes and assimilates these massacres. Y y por eso me parecía importante contar esta historia con un cierto sentido irónico. And that's why it was important to me to tell the story with a certain irony. Lo peor es que mucha de la gente leyó el artículo y lo celebró y lo presume como eh, un registro del gran acontecimiento que ellos lograron que es romper el récord del camarón. And the really sad part is a lot of people in este pueblo, a lot of people in this town celebrate this story and they love it as a celebration of their great achievement, which was to break the Guinness World Record for the largest shrimp cocktail. Para mí la violencia más difícil de combatir es precisamente esta violencia cultural y esta violencia institucional que and for me that's the hardest thing is to combat this violence of people like Slim uh, you know, uh, that's beyond I don't know, beyond this physical violence hay una expresión en español en inglés there's an expression in English que es algo similar que se llama mind fuck entonces sí porque es algo violento no es decir no es hacer el amor es algo violento fuck pero es al cerebro, ¿no? And so, yes, perfect, yes. Garnet, I want to I ask you about this, um, because I think if anybody in the audience here uh, reads fiction, your experience of, of, of the, the forms of violence that have existed in, in Jamaica, where you're from, um, may have come from uh, Marlon James's great novel, um, A Brief History of Seven Killings. Long History of 700 Killings. Yeah, <laughs> that's, that's, that's Garnet's alternate title for the book. Um, <laughs> Your, your piece obviously takes uh, the, the, an abstract form of violence and brings it in, to a personal level. But I wonder if you can start um, on a broader uh, experiential level of growing up in Kingston. You read Marlon's novel, and it's it's almost comical. Um, there's gangsters with names like Funky Chicken, um, and there's a kind of haphazard plot to kill Bob Marley. It, it is. There's a side plot with a CIA operative who's either encouraging or, or behind this or against it. It's not clear. What? How would you characterize what Kingston was like in the 1970s? Because as Diego was speaking, Kingston was also a, a country. Um, it was poor, but it also had some extremely rich people in it. Mm. And I wonder if the violence there was primarily um, organized forms of crime or if, it, if there were other and more invisible things that interest you more or that are less known that you might want to talk about? There's an intersection of <coughs> there's an intersection of both and one of the things I'm obsessed with as you know is the ways in which the mundane embodies so much more the ways in which the mundane are not mundane the commonplace is deeply complex and in a mirror for the things we like to f you know, focus our point on um, I think for example that, that given the story before of being in Charlottesville mm -hmm. and going to see the Ku Klux Klan march and on my way to the Ku Klux Klan march a woman was upset with me in the CVS because I wasn't giving her assistance I was like but on any given I mean if you're black, if you're black or brown, you know that phenomenon, what they call the lazy employee problem, in which 
you're in Doane Reed or CVS or Chase or somewhere and somebody's mad at you for not helping them except you just don't work there. <laughs> um, and so the ways in which the person was upset with me and then I went, saw the march and somebody who was denouncing the clan afterwards I had seen her in terror that her glasses had fallen and she clutched her handbags and assumed that I was a thief and so in which was available to me was that I was either an assailant or a servant. I was only there to cater to you or to assault you. Um, and that lack of imagination, you know, which for me was, you know, the real pervasive problem that was helping to create the kind of environment in which the clan felt that they were welcome to come to that town. But the focus on the vulgar and the vulgarity, you know, was a way not to deal with that more pervasive problem because for me the clan came to town they did their thing they were gone half an hour I never had to see them or deal with them again and I had been there for two years but the person who gets annoyed at me not helping them in CVS or in Barnes and Noble or in the bar or in the restaurant or in the pharmacy or in the grocery store I had to deal with them every single day um, to the point where I think that doing reading CVS on my commission for the amount of help I've given people. <laughs> you know, or the person who kept calling the cops because the mere fact of my dark skin was enough reason for alarm. You know, and so that also happened in you know, very much in Jamaica. And I guess I learned to deal with it just, you know, growing up in Jamaica that there are ways in which that brutal violence was helped to felt you know, facilitated by you know, the very wealthy. You know, who had, a lot of people had gained their wealth from political connections and which had divided up the country almost like a, in a chessboard into different political parties in which these people were called dons you know, um, you know, would rule and so you had election outcomes in which I mean we didn't have the problem with voting that you have here where there's not enough people voting our problem was that you had 110% of people voting for the same party <laughs> in districts and so these political domains but which were created and propped up and facilitated by you know, very wealthy people who had strong political connections but left the poor to hash it out with each other in an almost Habesian existence and so I had to deal with quite a bit of that and navigate that in growing up um, and of course there was no neutrality in Jamaica I mean like if you get held up with someone with a gun and so say are you JLP or PNP and I say I'm neutral and I said neutral JLP or neutral GPNP and, and so those are two political parties yes yeah, two political parties so there is no neutrality at all and so I learned to say inequality you know as something that wasn't so much the vulgar thing that brutal violence that we kept seeing but more invisible hand that you know continually you know played and you know was always at work in the, in the midst of that you know, awful violence that made you flinch away. So and, and always like flinching, I always make sure not to close my eyes because I know that if I close my eyes, I might have seen the very wealthy, the very powerful who, you know, stood behind while this happened. Mm. Um, we're, we're talking about political violence, but obviously uh, if we only look um, through that lens at, at certain things, we only see the the end result of a long s- series of of policies of, of, of lives too um, and you know Hector's piece is, is one of those examples where it's, it's, it's a tragic event and the only way to uh, really bring about um, 
the cost of that event is to tell the story of the life of the person who's lost. Um, and I wonder, you know, is it the, the height of naivete to believe that we can begin to create a society the likes of which we would want to live in by imagining the things we've lost, imagining the things that are in front of us, and, and basically imagining the spaces around violence rather than the end result of violence. Do you want to... D- um, yeah, I, I think we have this beautiful tool, this beautiful form of art called the book. It's very cheap. You know, $16 for entertainment that will last you two or three weeks, depending on, uh, you know, and it's very democratic. Uh, you know, of course, there's a problem of literacy. But um, I know that my career as a writer has been one of attempting to get into a bookstore like this one, books on the shelf that tell the story of my community in a more complex, truer way. And I know that that is empowering to lots of readers because now I teach and I see them come into my classes. And it's extremely um, empowering to someone to see a story like theirs reflected in literature. And so my novels, um, especially my first novel, which was my MFA thesis, The Tattooed Soldier, gets assigned in classes all over the place. And it gets assigned to young Latino kids in community colleges or UCLA and many different places as the story that tells a story of violence, of the origins of that violence um, in history. And it's it's a tool. It's a teaching tool. And I think that that to me is the total justification for what I do as a writer um, beyond what, I, what I'm trying to accomplish personally, artistically is this communication I came into this bookstore this very bookstore my writing career started in this bookstore when it was called Chatterton's uh, in the 1980s and I was this young working class kid I grew up in Little Ar- what's now called Little Armenia East Hollywood, not too far from here and I had a really poor public school education, but I felt the calling of literature. I was already then a reporter for the LA Times. I wanted to write literature, and I came here, and I found Don DeLillo. And I found this incredible new translation of Don Quixote uh, by, um, by Edith Grossman that I'd love and recommend to everybody. And that empowered me as a storyteller. It, it sort of gave me, it, it sort of taught me that my experience was connected to all these other human stories from the 16th century or from the Bronx in the 19th, you know, 50s or 60s. And so to me that that is one of the things that we that that gives me hope is just the humanities, you know, just the practice of the humanities um, for us as craftspeople and as readers as an audience, you know, as critics and editors. Um, it, literary culture is a bulwark against against the most deadening aspects of inequality. Mm. Garnet, how do you reflect community? Um, one of the first, this is the fourth or fifth piece I've published of Garnet's and the first one was in an anthology about New York City and inequality called Tales of Two Cities and he walked from the richest zip code in the United States to the poorest zip code wow. and why don't you describe the piece? Because you know that 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 kind of juxtaposition is shocking in and of itself. But the way you went about it was was really phenomenal because you found on the Upper East Side forms of of 
community impoverishment through the symptoms of wealth. And then when you arrived in the Bronx, you, find, you found riches on the street that the Upper East Side was depriving itself from. And I wonder if you can describe that. One of the hard things about writing about inequality is the ways in which people have retrenched into their own views of the world and are not particularly amenable to others. So, you know, people said, it reminds me of like, um, I used to be the president for an organization in college called Tillian Men Against Rape. And I remember somebody writing an op-ed criticizing me and said, great, these guys are against something nobody could possibly be for. <laughs> and it feels like the writing on inequality is like that, that that people are like, great, so you're against inequality, you know, who is for it? Uh, but suddenly what has happened is there are ways of seeing the wealthy, or ways of seeing the poor that you know, have reduced them. And one of the reasons we write is to try to remind people how irreducibly complex people are. But in the conversation about inequality, we somehow have taken on one or two dimensions. So I wanted first to remind people what it meant to be human, to be full of contradictions and the way in which irony shoots through all of us. The second thing is that I had Auden, as he's so often hovering over me, um, that poem, you know, as I walked out one evening, where he says, he said, love your crooked neighbor with your crooked heart. And to be reminded that whatever side of the financial divide you're on, you had virtues, you know, you had, you know, vices and faults. And so the other thing I wanted to do was to reverse the center of gravity, that whenever we spoke about this, it was always the Upper East Side was accessible to you. There's a whole world of literature in, a, in the Edith Wharton, in the onwards of the Upper East Side, you know, or Manhattan being this accessible place, and the dark was like this black box, you didn't know what happened there. And so I also wanted to play with that to suddenly make the Upper East Side seem like this closed world that we had in a no idea you know, what was going on. And then the Bronx is transparent world. Because it also was, you know, there's all this crunching. I also wanted to take away the, to, to take the data because so much of inequality, the discussion felt almost like you know, a data dump in a debt, in a and this is not to criticize it, but like in 27 people in it, you know, earned just as much as half. And so it sort of felt too abstract for others. And so, for instance, one of the things that happened with poor communities is the ways in which their lives are accessible. That the state imposes an accessibility on you. That if you're on, you know, you know, welfare, if you're you know, getting public assistance, they can ask who's sleeping at your house, you know, who are your lovers, you know, um, what have you done with your days, you have to give account for every single part of your private life. And so what that has actually also done, in one way it makes people cage when you want to ask them about their lives, but it also has made them more open to their lives. There's a way in which there's an accessibility you have going into the Bronx, you know, because of that. But also, I wanted to push against this idea of the poor, poor, that in arguing or writing about or fighting for the poor, you know, people were often condescended to them. It's like, oh, the poor, poor, they're awful lives. And I wanted to show the ways in which inequality was also an awful thing, not merely because of financial reason, but because of cultural and psychological and personal, because of the ways in which it diminished us as being human. 
and you know head headlong into that with that observation that Frederick Douglass made, which Baldwin had repeated in Fifth Avenue Uptown, that there's no way to degrade someone else without degrading yourself. Mm-hmm. And so the way in which inequality actually you know dehumanized us all. And so I chose instead to show the ways in which the wealthy's lives were, you know, closed and it's a kind of luxury that came from, from the wealthy. But also the ways in which they were depriving themselves and depriving us of things because of that you know, the ways in which we're you know fully access to the important parts of their humanity. But I also wanted to show in which the poor didn't need our condescension. That there are ways in which we were impoverished because of our lack of contact, you know, with them, because of you know the ways in which they didn't have access you know, to the public goods you yeah. know, that we had. And so I walked from the wealthiest to the poorest, partially to flip the categories by which we thought of things. But then suddenly, the poor became more mysterious to us, and then they... I mean, the poor became at once more mysterious, but also more you know, accessible to us, and the same you know, with the wealthy. But then everybody became fully human at the end of it, and so you didn't make it easy for you to retrench in the ground that you, that you mm. once um, did. Diego Garnett uh, just m- talked about uh, abstractions um, when it comes to social issues. And I wonder, um, when you're reporting a, a story, are you following uh, dis- discrete individuals and then they become part of a larger theme or thread that people are following within society in the news? Or do you, are you following the thread and then find the, the people who um, um, tell the story of that thread? Sí, sí. Uh, en hablando de la desigualdad, si, si cuando comienzas a escribir encuentras personas que tienen algún aspecto así abstracto o algún aspecto que quieres hacer un que, que, que puedes usar para un comentario o si es al opuesto, ¿no? Si vas a, a, a y si tienes algún si encuentras una, si encuentras algo un, una cosa que quiere decir una realidad y buscas a las personas para contar esa realidad. Sí. Eh. Bueno, yo muchos años eh, trabajé en el diarismo haciendo notas eh, todos los días. How many days I worked in uh, daily newspapers, writing stories every day. Y digamos que en ese tiempo yo estaba muy condicionado al azar. A veces eh, seguía una persona, a veces eh, un movimiento, un grupo social. And in those days I was very much uh, conditioned by chance. I'd follow a person or a movement. You know, and the moment that I decided that I would leave behind daily journalism and begin to write about issues with more, uh, or write with more profundity, tuvo que ver con una insurrección que hubo en un estado pobre e indígena de México que se llama Oaxaca. It was when there was an insurrection in a very poor uh, community, very, very poor state of southern Mexico called Oaxaca. Yo llegué como un reportero a cubrir una manifestación. I arrived as a reporter to cover a demonstration. Y dos meses después, todos los poderes estaban exiliados habían salido los gobernantes de, de la ciudad y un grupo muy diverso donde había trotskistas anarquistas hasta estalinistas gente izquierda un poco también de centro derecha 
tenían el control de la ciudad. Dos, this was dos meses o dos, dos semanas. Dos meses después. And two weeks, two months later after I arrived, uh, suddenly all the uh, officials uh, in this town, all the government uh, offices were held by this group of leftists, of Trotskyists and Stalinists and all these different groups of leftists. Y contrario a la historia latinoamericana donde siempre hay un caudillo que puede ser Fidel Castro su comandante Marcos mm -hmm. aquí no había un líder era una asamblea un movimiento colectivo and uh, and running against the whole tradition of Latin American history that the person who rises to power in such an instance is a caudillo is a strongman in this particular place um, the collectivity ruled ruled the es una ciudad un municipio mm -hmm. ruled the city ese momento eh, para mí fue eh, un privilegio como periodista haber atestiguado eh, ese levantamiento de los pobres, esa insurrección y, y me hizo también entender eh, o el, eh, el reto de poder narrar un movimiento colectivo y no buscar como buscaban todos los medios siempre. Eh, traducir todo ese movimiento a una sola persona, a un líder, sino en la diversidad. And so that taught me uh, the, the great challenge of writing about that was that it taught me that I needed to write about the collectivity and not do what the rest of the media was doing, which would be just to write about one leader of that movement, to, but rather to write about the community as a whole. Ustedes saben que en nuestro continente, eh, que es un continente como se ha dicho aquí, lo ha dicho eh, tu compañero y Héctor. Es un continente desigual, salvo Estados Unidos y Canadá. Uh, as you know, in our continent, in our, which is a continent of great inequalities, uh, salvo Estados Unidos, incluyendo Canadá y Estados Unidos. No, salvo Estados Bueno, pero son, son digamos, oh, democracias, con una clase media más saturada. Yeah, with the exception of Canada and the United States, um, the rest of the continent has this incredible inequality. Solo ha habido tres revoluciones, que There's son la three. mexicana de 1910, la cubana de 1950 y la nicaragüense de 1979. And so in, in that whole area, in this whole area of the West, there's only been three successful revolutions, the Mexican Revolution of 1910, the Nicaraguan Revolution of 1979, the Cuban Revolution of 1969, and the rest of the, the, rest of, uh, of, of, of the hemisphere has been kept in the state of inequality. Y estamos ahora en una era en la que este siglo se ha dicho que ya no da, ya no va, ya no van a existir revoluciones en América mm -hmm. y a mí me tocó ver una semilla. Mm. Eso para mí fue un momento muy bello, muy inspirador, aunque lo que vino después fue terrible. And in supposedly in this era where we're not going to see any more revolutions, I saw this seed, this small seed of a revolution, and it was really, really beautiful uh, to see that. Of course, then what later came was awful, was terrible. Me tocó presenciar el asesinato de dos personas. I was uh, I was present to, as the witness of the assassination of two people, incluyendo un camarógrafo norteamericano, Brad, including a uh, North American uh, cameraman, Brad Will. Brad Will, sí. Que estaba grabando con su cámara. He was, eh, he was recording. De los he was attacking a para, He was he was taking a photographs. He was shooting a an attack by paramilitary uh, a paramilitary unit. Cuando fue asesinado. When he was assassinated. Y su caso sigue impune al día de hoy. And to uh, no one has ever been punished for that uh, for that killing uh, up to today. Y la insurrección fue aplastada. And the insurrection was uh, squashed. Después de eso, eh, ha sido difícil para mí encontrar un movimiento que pueda 
volver eh, interesante para mí eh, escribir acerca de él y por lo regular son eh, personajes, líderes. Uh, and since then it's been very hard for me to find a movement to write about because usually what I have to write about are, are individuals or leaders. Me ha tocado entrevistar a Evo Morales, a I interviewed Chavez, Evo Morales and Hugo Chávez, Sugona de Marcos, many Pero personalities. Se con este de la But none compares to this movement, this collective movement in Oaxaca. De gente anónima, gente que vive ahora. People who are anonymous, who live now. Yeah. Yes. Hector, um, I was in Vancouver four days ago with Diego, who um, made a compelling point that... Um, a great deal of the violence which has afflicted is not the right word um, besieged Mexico um, due to narco trafficking has, has been unleashed since the change in the style of government into the 20th century mm. as it became a democracy and you, you made it Diego a startling point that maybe democracy has some problems with it um, mm. Uh, not democracy is messy, as, as um, uh, our ignoble um, former Secretary of, of Defense described it. Hector, you've spent a lot of time reporting here. Um, you traveled. He has a beautiful book called Translation Nation, um, which is a kind of de Tocquevillian journey around the United States into um, Spanish-speaking communities, in which he takes... Uh, what is made invisible by popular culture and, and shows its vibrancy. Um, and yet, many of the people you speak to are, are struggling with uh, terrible forms of um, disempowerment. And yet, there's also great joy, and there's, you know, uh, DJs in Salt Lake City, you know, mm -hmm. who you would never even know to some degree if they were uh, a Latino. Anyway, what, what, what I want to ask you is, um, do you ever have doubts yourself uh, especially now in this country about uh, democracy um, not as a form but rather what it has become and, and how would that affect your writing if you began to feel that way um, yeah, I, I come from a very optimistic family. My parents were uh, immigrants from Guatemala, and um, there was illiteracy in my past. And so, you know, my own personal journey is one from illiteracy to writing books. So I'm a very optimistic person. But um, to me, what is really the most difficult thing to witness, because I'm a product of the LA Unified School District, is what's happening, what's happened to public education in our lifetimes, you know? And sort of this libertarian thread of America. American society gradually eating away at social investment, <laughs> you know, and just to see the cruelty of that is is a very difficult thing um, to see. Um, on the other hand, I am really just um, excited by what I've seen in my lifetime happen in the in my own hometown, Los Angeles, and especially in the Latino community in terms of just all these new forms of expression. You know, a little bit like what both my panelists, federal panelists here have talked about, um, of just seeing the just infinite number of ways in which so-called ordinary people find ways to feel powerful or to express themselves, to create institutions. Um, that's sort of what I've been doing for 25 years is collecting these stories of people who um, just create, uh, who create new things, new 
marches, parades, uh, new galleries, um, new zines. You know, it's just, it's just, it just never. The flame never seems to go out, and I, I see it also now as an instructor who's worked at two different public universities, is to have that incoming freshman class of 18-year-olds, and they're also idealistic, and they see the whole world of learning before them, and they just want to. Many of them, not all of them, just want to sort of soak it up, and so I'm, I'm, I'm optimistic. I think, to me, one of the great things about having been raised in the United States was how big the middle class is in comparison to other countries, because the middle class is this very, very important. It's sort of like the beating heart of democracy, and um, and so to me, I, I'm worried about the middle class, but at the same time, I'm proud of what I've seen the middle class accomplish. You know, in my lifetime, I mean. People are so much more comfortable in my orbit, at least, as a middle-class person with uh, cultural diversity than I can even remember when I was a kid. You know, there are, it, it, so it, there has been a lot of progress made, and so even though we're living in these incredibly dark times, and even though we have something as horrible as what's happening with the 14 million undocumented people in this country, who are de facto um, members of the American uh, civic culture and yet are denied basic rights and are basically becoming are being treated as slaves you know people who are have been people who we accept their labor and yet we don't want to give them uh, you know rights and that of course America has a long tradition of that that to me is very frightening that the, this condition this sort of state of the undocumented which I thought I would see some major immigration reform now in my lifetime. Now I'm, I'm beginning to sort of doubt that that will happen. But I, I do, I, so I don't have, I, I believe our institutions are imperiled. Our institutions are very weak. Our institutions have been undermined uh, by many, many different kinds of, 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 of things. But, uh, and so I'm worried about our institutions, but I continue to have faith uh, about the resilience and the resourcefulness of of working people. Mm. I want to ask you a follow-up question and um, go to Garnett. The question I want, I think you, um, this state of affairs prompts us to ask is, is the United States a civics experiment or is it a, a, a business experiment? Mm. And when you think of the fact that, uh, as Ta-Nehisi Coates puts it, you know, the lives of several million people kidnapped to this country with right. a down payment for American democracy, and as much as you're speaking of the sort of civil rights of undocumented workers, they're they're here for the their their sort of economic value as workers, and yet right. they're not or, um, recognized as as people. And I wonder, as a storyteller, um, what can you do to sort of um, tilt us towards the civic experiment side mm. uh, without becoming a propagandist? Is it in your case simply collecting stories? And showing that they're more than "quote unquote" social capital, hmm. um, or is it, is it something beyond that? Well, I mean, I sort of populated. I've always populated my books, be they nonfiction or fiction, with people who are like my dad. You know, they're they're you know sort of peasant intellectuals. You know, uh, my father to this day reads a book a week and reads Einstein, you know, biography of Einstein, and he's somebody who you know had a fourth grade education. And so, um, you know, I think um, I. 
I, I just fi- I think that's a truth of the world that we live in. It's a truth of this. Uh, it's and it's truth of all all capitalist societies have produced those kinds of people. Not because capitalism produces that, but because that's part of the cultural um, foundation on which capitalist societies were built. You know, I've been reading recently, very slowly, James Joyce's Ulysses. And here's a portrait of a working man's sort of, you know, what kind of working man's kind of intellectual, but not really entirely intellectual, Dublin. And just the richness of the street life and the richness of the interior life of, of the characters. And, you know, Joyce himself was someone from a very, very uh, poor family, a family that was really dysfunctional. And I just feel that that's sort of just part of what, it's this other side of what comes uh, it's not a product of capitalism but it's something that has endured and found ways of thriving in capitalist society and um, I believe capitalism should be destroyed I guess still I, I used to be a Trotskyist um, but um, but I you know I, but I still feel that 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 these these ways of being human have ways of enduring and um, and so I don't know if that answers your question. No, it's, it's a, in some ways it's a question that prompts other questions. Yes. Um, and and by reaching to literature, I, I I'm fascinated by the fact that you instead of going to Upton Sinclair or something, you go to James Joyce. And Garnett, you know, you the first thing you did after you uh, survived this period of your life, adopting the the Nancy figure is um, you started to go to school and, and eventually you you found yourself working in a bookstore like this, reading your way through the shelves um, almost at random. And I wonder if you can talk a little bit about stumbling on Kazuo Ishiguro, who recently won the no, the Nobel Prize, and and what that meant to you at the time. Um, because I think one thing we're talking about is is not just the, the importance of recording stories and being an observer and an engaged observer, but finding different frameworks um, for being human that resist the framework that's being put upon us right. by our societies, which is you are undocumented, you don't have rights, or you are a victim, um, you are simply only traumatized. Um, you are poor, therefore your life is only known to be poor and sad. Um, and what, what I find in what all of you are saying is that there, if you acknowledge complexity, mm-hmm. there are possibilities as dark as the, the reality that you're reporting within seems. And I, what, what, what did Ishiguro mean to you at the time when you, when you found him? Well, I didn't read until I... I mean, I met Ishiguro when I just began reading. So some of it is... It's taken on... I mean, the feeling you have when you just take on a new hobby or... Uh, in a in a head to a new city that the earliest encounters you know some of this deeper meaning to them uh the person who introduced to the streets of l a somehow has a resonance in your memories or when you you know you know make your way down roots of nostalgia or in a memory in a meets experience that that person looms much larger than just about anyone else um that the way in which I enter the scene you know, allows him to dominate the rest of the story. So that is part of it the issue group, but part of it was also I mean, I had grown up in a home in which I just began reading, you know, as a kid, um, Enid Blyton and Nancy Drew, which if you don't know are like champions in uh 
you know, so-called you know, third-world countries. I mean, you talk to just about anybody, you know, from you know, you know, Africa or the Caribbean or Latin America, they will tell you like, "Oh, Enid Batten, we're down." Like, you know, an enterprising editor should ask Chimamanda to write a piece about, you know, I don't know any enterprising editors. Yeah, <laughs> Enid Batten, and so, but my stepfather, being who he was, uh, thought it just proved that I was gay and being brutally homophobic um, and you have to admit that also in a society that itself was brutally homophobic you know he would drive me out of the house by force and saying go out stop being gay um, you know go do what boys do and so at some point it sort of a shutdown and books you know became you know excluded from a life you know and then of course there was you know the 1980s there was Michael Jackson and uh, Grandmaster Flash and Mel Mel and you know all these people you know asking to be danced to and break dance became a part so books are sort of left and then later on in college when I you know came to books you know almost by accident I came to the back door photography that I wanted to learn to shoot and you know observe and see the world and I had to read to you know, learn to do that it opened the door for reading and I dropped out of college said been doing physics and I was a double major in computer engineering and physics. End of my junior year, I asked to transfer, and it's a very Jamaican way of responding. They said, "You're doing computer engineering and physics, and you want to move to English and literature." And I said, "Yeah." And I said, "We think you're having a mental breakdown, <laughs> so you should go see the university psychiatrist, and if she clears you, we will give it a transfer." I head to her, and she sends back a report which said. I see no clear mental problems, but he has fantastic dreams that should not be indulged. <laughs> and so I dropped out and then began working at this bookstore. And unlike American bookstores where there's this, it's almost this romantic discussion about American bookstore. You know, people working in the bookstore here who are lovers of literature and, you know, wanted to leave with as many books as possible and introduce it to the lovely world of literature. The bookstore that I worked in Jamaica, like you'd walk in, the first sign you see was like every single shelf and huge in the bookstore said, no reading. <laughs> <laughs> and then you had a security guard who was hired and the security guard's job was to prevent people from reading. And so he'd begin reading and he'd sort of hustle up right beside you and said, do you go to Kentucky Fried Chicken and eat a bucket before you decide if you're buying it? <laughs> then don't read the book before you buy it. Buy the book and read it if you want it. But don't read before buy. It's not taste and buy. And so he would do that. And so I was in a place in which, a bookstore in which nobody read and the books weren't selling and they couldn't understand why. And so I just, you know, began making my way through and reading, reading, reading. And then they had a sale. And so, of course, they were selling Kezi Ishiguro because in a Jamaican mind, or like the Jamaican mind then, sure things have changed a lot since. But in Jamaican mind then is like, why would I want to write, read a book about post-war England by a Japanese dude? That makes no sense. You know, give me Dickens. Dickens writes about England. That makes sense. But Keza Ishiguro about a British butler. Come on, man. And so it was on sale, like pretty much a giveaway for like nothing. So I actually bought Keza Ishiguro first because it was so cheap. Because we couldn't get anybody to buy a book about a British butler, you know, written by a Japanese author, as far as we're concerned. And I entered with a little bit of that bias, well, more than a little bit of that bias. 
But then again, as I said about reading, it's a way of like slicing time. The way he sort of like sliced them and pull you in, and you were just drawn into this different world, and you know these, you know, you know the ways in which you, you know, went across time, and met somebody else, you know, in their full humanity, and then got pushed back out of that time and time sewn back up, and you felt that your own humanity had expanded, your own dignity had been enriched, your own understanding, your own empathy. In a, in a had in a, been plumbed even deeper, and so he became the first author in in our website. Said I wanted to get more Ishiguro, and of course all the books are in sale, so that made it easy. And so I went through one after the other in a pale view of the hills, in the artist of the floating world, in a, and then Ishiguro just opened this whole universe where in it it went from him to Wallace Stegner to Dickens to George Eliot to and of course there was something like being in your twenties and going, Oh my God, the great Gatsby is amazing <laughs> and people were looking like, Yeah, we knew it at eleven you know, or also to like come to Shakespeare in the late twenties and then understanding why my neighbor's mother really hated me because I'd written all you know these love poems that I wrote on my own when I was thirteen. And then I was at you know, twenty five, twenty six discovering oh damn, I'd plagiarized Shakespeare and didn't even know it. No, one of them would have thought I was a liar. I was like sending these Shakespearean sonnets, thinking, of course, nobody knows who this guy is. You know, you know, I can you know, get away with it. But it just opened this whole world, and so that world of reading. Mm. And I actually became a writer partially because I wanted to continue being a reader. It was a way of extending that world of being a reader and wanting to meet people in, in these richer more full humanities, mm. you know, which itself would make my own humanity richer and broader. Yeah. And so Ishiguro was your starter drug. Of, um, yeah. Here's my intro. Hector, your, no, your your novel Barbarian Nurseries, which is one of my my favorite novels of the last ten years. Basically, a, a couple is splitting up. Um, one goes to a spa. The other one, I think, is just kind of having a breakdown and playing video games. Um, and uh, as a result, uh, the, the domestic worker has to find a way to get these children that are she's w- looking after safe. And so she does a kind of odyssey across L.A. It would be a great film um, if anyone writes films. But uh, I, my question is, um, I was living in England when that was published, and I... I that book was published there, um, yes, it and it was—I I saw it everywhere, and I—I I always wondered what someone would think of LA <laughs> picking that book up in Holland Park in West London, you know, a, after sort of wiping the hangover off their face and getting out of their 19-year-old Jaguar. And um, oh, hello. Um, what I wonder if you can—if t- there is a story in your life of someone finding one of your books. To be a starter drug for them that that surprised you um, yeah, I mean um, well, thank you i that that uh, i'm impressed you read so much you can remember the plot of my novel i'm just even that made my evening you know um, it's a, it's a great novel. but you know i wrote this I wrote this novel I was telling about the tattooed soldier and um, and it's uh, it's about essentially it's about the Guatemalan genocide it's mostly set in Los Angeles and it's these two refugees from uh, the war in Central America who are on opposite sides of the war so one is a political refugee whose wife and son were killed and the other one was a death squad soldier and they meet in the streets of LA and there is a confrontation during the 1992 insurrection or riots in which one character um, faces off and the other, it's so so it's really about the war in Guatemala and about inequality in L.A., you know. 
And um, and so um, as I said, it was you know it's assigned to lots of Latino students. And that when I first sold that novel, it was to a little publishing house called Delphinium Books for five thousand dollars, and it you know was reviewed in the LA Times, didn't really get much play, and it was being but it was the professors at the community colleges who kept my book in print because they kept on assigning it. And I remember once the first time I met this uh, group of Central American students at uh, Pasadena City College and they wanted to meet me to talk about my novel. And so they were all like, you know, 19, 20 years old. And we were talking, you know, I was talking with them and one of them said, you know, uh, I'm from El Salvador and this is like, this is the same story. You know, this is our story, Central America. And I told my father... Uh, about your book. And he said, oh yeah, you know, I lived some horrible things in the war. And he says, I know dad, but you've never told me about them. And so they had never talked about this horrible experience that the father had had during the civil war in El Salvador and um, in Central America. And so the the son says, well, I've read this book by this author. He's, you know, Central American like we are. Uh, Maybe you could read it. And at that time, it's never been translated into Spanish, that novel. Um, But it's been translated into French, but not into into Spanish. and, uh, and so this kid, who's 19, gives the book to his father. And um, his father had never read a book in English before. He'd lived in the United States for like 20 years, but never read a book in English. My book is it's a very accessible book, uh, The Tattooed Soldier. So the father reads the book, and he finishes the book, and he turns to his son, and he says, Son, now you know what I went through. And my entire career as a writer was justified just by that moment, you know, by this, you know, by this father and son suddenly understanding each other um, because of of my book and that book opening a conversation between them. Um, And, you know, that's that that. It was just a wonderful moment. He started crying as he told me that story. I started crying. And he's always with me, that that uh, reader. He's always with me. He's the reason why, after many rejections of my second novel, I still tried to write books. Was for him and you know, and for people like him. And so, yeah, that's it's it's amazing what literature can do with this little portable kind of way of co- of communicating ideas and stories. Mm. Final question for Diego. Um, you know, uh, one of the goals of this issue. Uh, some of the some of the writers in it have not been translated into English. Um, Diego's first book, uh, his most recent book, uh, the biography of Carlos Slim, will be translated into English, and Verso is publishing it. Um, but your most translated language is Italian. Yeah. Um, and I wonder if you have had an experience w- with um, the Zetas book, uh, or the Sinola cartel book, or any of your r- reported books. He wrote a book uh, about a bus trip across this, the country that he followed where people who had been victims of narco-violence were kind of a, an awareness publicity stunt to say this is the cost of what's happening in Mexico. And he took that bus trip with him. Have, has anyone said to you from uh, Italy or another country, I read this and this is our story too? Si alguna persona en Italia, ¿no? donde se ha traducido muchos trabajos, ha, ha leído alguna obra suya y ha dicho, esta historia es nuestra historia también. Sí. Eh, uh, yes. Curiosamente, eh, yo he recorrido casi toda Italia. Curiously, I've been through almost all of it. I've been across all, almost all of Italy. 
giras parándome en cada, en cada ciudad durante Tours, un mes pero nunca he ido a Sicilia que es el lugar donde suele haber eh, esta evocación de que lo que se vive es muy parecido pero he never been to Sicily where I've heard that there is this sense that what's lived there is very similar to what's Mexico. La la RAI, la televisión italiana. The RAI, the RAI, uh, you know, Italian uh, radio and television. Mandó un periodista eh, italiano y un equipo a a a mi tierra, Monterrey. Sent a journalist. They sent RAI sent a journalist to my my tierra, my land, uh, Monterrey. Y yo estaba muy emocionado, me acompañaron a, a viajar was, por la ciudad. I was very moved by this. Uh, they accompanied me in traveling to the city. Pero después de dos días era muy fastidioso escuchar todo el tiempo el asombro de los periodistas italianos que hasta el canto de los pájaros decían, así cantan los pájaros en Sicilia. Yo ya estaba and, un poco desesperado. And after a couple of a couple of days it was it was actually kind of irritating that the Italian journalists kept on saying, "No, those singing birds, they sing just like they do in Sicily." <laughs> Yo creo que eh, lo que pasa en México no es algo eh, pues eh, solo mexicano, hay peculiaridades. I think that what's happening in Mexico isn't just a Mexican phenomenon. There are specific things. Pero eh, esencialmente eh, está ahí lo lo más humano e inhumano en lo que contamos eh, del país. But essentially what's there is the most human and inhuman stories uh, that we tell in our country. Alguien me decía de esta historia del cóctel de camarones mm -hmm. que era muy parecida, por ejemplo, al festival de la langosta en Maine que David Foster Wallace contó alguna vez. Uh, someone told me that this story of the shrimp cocktail is very similar to a story that David Foster Wallace told about the lobster festival in Maine. <laughs> Siempre hay paralelismos, a final de cuentas. Siempre hay qué? Paralelismos. There's always parallel aspects to a story. A mí me interesa hacer eh, historias particulares de América Latina, que es lo que yo conozco, que es lo que yo he viajado, pero eh, pienso que son historias que pueden eh, entenderse en cualquier parte del mundo. I like to tell stories of Latin American reality because that's what I know the best, but I think these are stories that can be understood anywhere in the world. Mm. Well, um, it is such a pleasure to have Diego here all the way from from Monterrey. Um, no, no, Sonora. Sonora. Um, Hector from across town. Um, Garnett from from New York. Uh, you know, the the most ideal event would be to have all 29 riders here, uh, and they range. You know, one of them works the graveyard shift at a 7-Eleven in Tokyo and has won that country's largest literary prize, um, and yet that's still her day job, or her night job. Uh, there's a former provincial policeman from China. There's three um, women writers from, from Argentina who are every bit as bold and, and dirty, frankly, uh, as Roberto Bolaño. Um, mm -hmm. So if, if you're ready for a Latin American binge, um, there's a lot of that here. There's some writers you probably know, Dean Almangestu, Ocean Vaughn, who's kind of the big debut in poetry, um, Solmaz Sharif, who was a finalist for her debut book last year, um, and there's lots more. Uh, and it's a real pleasure to have you guys give us a, a wedge of light, um, not just into this issue, but hopefully what it, uh, it, it is moving against, which is the reduction of what it means to be human. Um, and, you know, Hector, it's, thank you very much for for being here and, and being a bridge between this anthology and this one um, and, and for doing all your great work. Um, if you have a question, I'm sure they'd love to answer it now. Yes? Um, do you fear uh, 
¿Temes eh, los asesinatos que enfrentan muchos periodistas o es su trabajo es, es tan irónico que es, está más, más allá, más eh, donde no te, va, no te va a afectar la violencia? <risa> eh, creo que cualquier persona que busca la verdad en México I think that any person who seeks truth in Mexico sea periodista, sea un abogado, sea un activista who's a journalist, an attorney or an activist o sea una, una persona que eh, es víctima de un crimen y quiere investigar cualquier persona sabe que por buscar la verdad la pueden matar any any person knows that for looking for the that searching for the truth can lead to your being killed eso es algo que uno da por hecho that's just a given eh, personalmente yo me, me protejo tengo medidas de seguridad personally I protect myself I have uh, security measures I take in every investigation I do hay lugares donde voy disfrazado there are places that I go monja. wearing um, a disguise as a priest or a monk hay lugares eh, donde tengo que ir definitivamente con guardias there are places where I have to go with guards bodyguards lo, lo cual es un problema porque suelo escoger guardias pues muy jóvenes y, con, y muy amables and which is a problem because I, I choose bodyguards who are very young and friendly y parezco yo el guardia de ellos ¿no? and I seem like I'm the, their bodyguard <laughs> pero eh, fuera de bromas es muy grave lo que but está pasando but all joking aside it's very serious what's happening ni en Siria matan más periodistas que en México not even in Syria do they kill more journalists than in Mexico eh, en mi caso han matado a tres periodistas amigos míos um, in my case three of my friends three journalist friends of mine have been killed a cuatro los han secuestrado four of them have been, been kidnapped y yo he tenido que salir dos veces del país por el alto riesgo de amenazas and I've had to leave the country twice because of the high risk of threats sin embargo el periodismo tiene más sentido que nunca cuando hay una situación como esta paradójicamente but uh, Paradoxically, journalism just makes more sense than ever in a situation like this. Mm. Oh. No, that's you, yeah. One of the things that I hope to do as a writer is to remove abstractions and have people more richly imagine the life of others, but also more thoughtfully consider their own. And there are you know, many different ways of doing it. One thing that I've done with, with New York is that 
there's such a focus on the numbers and it's such near can be like a butterfly on men in a, on speed that you know just as when you think like you know you've cut a snapshot of where it is and it moves somewhere and it and it it moves with such velocity um sometimes a violent velocity it's hard to get a snap in it at best you can only get snapshots and so one of the things i did was that i was involved in a project as a contributor but also the editor at large for this book called Nonstop Metropolis which I worked on with my friend Rebecca Solnit and Josh Jelly Shapiro and so we figured that everybody has a map whether they're conscious or not we all have maps you know, of where we are different ways of moving in the world and seeing the world that you know, we've mapped out um, you know you come to I mean there are no kids yet so I mean I think for example saying something about this map that somebody has one of my colleagues um, I teach at MIT and there's a transportation specialist two doors down from me and you go in his office and there's like a huge poster that says New York City because we want you to know where you're going and there's that grid and it goes Boston because fuck you <laughs> I said Boston roadway system um and one of the things that actually happens is that post is, it's a, he's a New Yorker, but the post is also a product of this clash of maps. That you're used to the grid and you come to Boston and you really think that somebody is just trying to screw with you. You know, just trying to you know, <laughs> make your life so difficult and not have you get where you want to go. Um, and so we all have it. We all have a way of being in the world. And when we enter somewhere new, we try to retrofit that onto the in a new place and so I thought that you know, you know maps were an important part of telling stories and I wanted to, you know, we wanted to go back to the old way of maps that not the grid where the grid is, again is an abstraction that's supposed to fit everybody but in a, in a, the story maps that say you know, how you saw the world and so we got at inequality by trying to find oblique ways to talk about it to look at the ways in which inequality you know, stretched um, in a, and squeeze the culture in ways um, that you know, turn it in a caricature or you know, brutalized it. So the way, for instance, in a, in a diversity and inclusion, which is a marvelous thing, you know, has now become a way, because of inequality and because of the way all the immigrants are treated, it's now become a way to think of service industry. So think of this Indian writer know that whenever he meets people, people say, oh, you're Indian, I love Indian food. <laughs> and so his response is, on behalf of Indian food, I thank you. And <laughs> <laughs> that, that now when you think of you know, someone Asian American, it's you know, how can they feed me or this narrowness of the model minority. And so inequality sort of made us then reduce the kind of roles that people have, the kind of ways in which we can see them. And so we have a, like a map of Staten Island that's famous for in its white flight um, and the ways inequality worked with that. And so we found a common ground by looking at the Wu-Tang Clan, the wanting everybody Staten Island can agree that everybody loves. And then we mapped the Wu-Tang Clan and just different things they sung about, which is the best research project ever, <laughs> that the task was to sit down and listen to the entire Wu-Tang catalog and then map different in a crucial aspect on it. But then we then mapped the contribution that Chinese Americans made to Staten Island and you saw phenomenal social effects, the ways in which they changed the nature of elderly care there and solve, well, tried to solve this problem of you know, both partners in a household you know, working but at the same time trying to hold on to ways of family. And so we showed the ways in which inequality tried to undermine the family unit but different ways of responding to it. And also we have 
you know, talking about immigrants, not as a group that is only there to serve you, you know, to dance for us, feed us, um, you know, in a clean for us. But then also, you know, we were mapping it, we were seeing from some of the Wu-Tang Clan songs, we were singing about people who were killed by police. And then we discovered quite by accident that one people that the Wu-Tang Clan sang about, about police, you know, in a, you know, unlawfully killing a black you know, man was a block and a half from where Ghana was killed. And so we started, you know, recognizing that as we started looking at the ways that mapping city and looking at the kind of tragedies in city, looking at, you know, the aftermath of city, looking at one of the things that inequality does is that it has us continually in a, moving in lockstep with ambition, that we don't have time to slow down and look behind, that we don't have time for a tragedy after, in, in a tragedy or in a, in a pain, you know, with a sort of clean up and it's like, nothing to see here, move on. And so the mapping was a way to like slow down, to ask, what are the different ways that you know, the culture has you know, you know, f- you know, felt reverberations? What are the kind of scars that exist? And New York is marvelous in that way, in the way it, it wears its scars on its, you know, on its sleeve. And so to you know, you know, give a snapshot of these scars and then write about it and to, then to look at the ways that intersect with the ways you know, that the sharp inequality is thwarting us and you see it coming to the shore. So I'm not sure that we necessarily solved anything, but at the very least what we did do is to let people see that inequality has deep cultural reverberations and effects, everything from the environment and you know, climate change to the way the elderly are you know, treated and cared for in the city to um, me walking around New York City for 24 hours straight without sleeping and showing how you could sort of see the world in a, in, a, in a day in New York but map the different complexities and the mysteries and the horrors and the pains that immigrants you know, have to deal with and to look at you know, exclusion you know, um, and isolation in a way that you know, functions there. Do, do you guys have that book here? Non-stop, non-stop Metropolis? It's right what? there. Ah, you can s- yeah, there's... there's it's, a, a, it's the last in the trilogy. There, there's several of them. Um, uh, I, I think at this point we should um, yeah. probably... Can I ask, can I ask you um, uh, let's do two more yes, of course. Uh, there's two questions. Uh, wait, there's... Um, I let, wha- right no, everybody should ask. Yeah, yeah, wh- why don't you ask your question? No, I. It's it's funny funny that you asked that question because, um, well, for lots of reasons, I guess. Yeah. No, I I I'm really lucky because I've had the same relationship with the editor of my last three books. I've known him for, you know, I've known him for 15 years now. And um, Sean McDonald, who's at FSG now, and he's just, you know, I know I can write anything. I mean, I really just, any work of art that I could conceive, um, he'll look at it as a work of art. But I know that writers of color especially confront constantly confront uh, the expectations of agents especially literary agents who are these gatekeepers and the literary agents give them terrible advice you know all the time the worst advice and part of my you know 
I, part of what I do now is I have the resource of having published four books and having written five because I wrote one that didn't get published and I just finished my sixth, my fifth book that's going to be published and anyways and so having this experience I can share with people you know I can I can be this other sort of this elder this wise person who can say that advice you got is totally fucked up you know um, and uh, and so I think that lots of writers feel that pressure. But I think that you have to have as a writer, um, you have to have this, and every writer, of color, not of color, male, female, transgendered, whoever's a writer, you have to have this incredibly powerful sense of the uniqueness of what you have to say. And thankfully I, I, I've always had that. I was a jerk as a kid, you know. Uh, and, you know, straight A student, and then, you know, I just, I've always been a jerk. And who believes what he has to say is important. And it's funny because now I'm ready a novel that I've, I just finished it yesterday, and it's 180,000 words. It's oh too my. long, wow. and it's most and it's it's a story of a white man, you know. And so for me, the challenge is how do I turn this upside down every day? Because he's traveling around the world, and he's seen all these places in the world. It's a true story that I made that I've novelized, and and so I feel. Uh, what I feel is I feel the pressure of my colleagues, of my fellow writers, uh, of all races. That's who I'm. Re- that's who I'm responding to. It's like, how, how do I make this um, uh, a work of art that deals with the realities of our time, and that's true to who I am and what I've what I want to say, and um, and that's already sort of that's already enough pressure to have as a writer. I, you know, to think about what the market wants, oh God, there's so many writers who do that. And it's just so, that's produces so much bad writing, you know? Mm. And after my last book, I was on many, many prize juries. I was like on five or six, five or six prize juries. And I get these boxes and boxes of books. And there was like, what, there were, I don't want to, I'm never, I'm not going to mention anybody specifically, but you could see, especially certain writers of color or certain publishing houses or certain editors trying to hit the same note that two or three other writers had hit you know and it's like oh my god this is deadening you know so yes obviously I don't feel that because I've been I've been working for 20 years um, to, to, to say what I want to say I mean I wrote my first novel was a political novel Latino political novel violence and war and the first editors and to read it it's like oh but we want Julia Alvarez you know, we want Christina Garcia. We don't want genocide. You know, well, what does it have to do with me? So I had enough chutzpah. I had enough sort of sense of like what I wanted to say, my own personal mission, and also I was stupid enough, you know, and stubborn enough, um, because there's all of us have that quality of just being stubborn. That's what you have. That's like the most important thing to be a writer is to be stubborn. Um, that I don't, you know, I still don't. I still don't feel like I'm, I'm going to allow anybody to dictate to me. And in fact, the history of literature, I'm not saying that what I'm doing is great literature, but generally speaking, the history of great literature is built on those, on the backs of those men and women who have raised a finger and said, I don't give a shit what you want 
me. You know, it's like, what you want me to write. I mean, one of my favorite writers to read now is this incredibly opaque writer, Clarice Lispector, Brazilian, who, (laughs) yes, you guys know her, you know? It's like, and the fact that she has readers in the United States is due to um, literary culture, to new directions, to this culture, the small culture of translation, you know, wonderful translation by Idra Novi, this uh, poet. She translated a new translation. And so, you know, it's like Clarissa Spector didn't give a shit. She wrote an entire novel about a woman in a room with a cockroach, you know? And so if she can have those guts, then why can I? And so that's sort of what I try to communicate when I talk to, to write. I don't know if that is sort of like a, answers your question. <laughs> I don't write for publications. I write for editors. And the reason, I mean, there are a number of reasons for that. But one reason is which... I like to be seen as a writer and I like to work with people who tries to unleash my imagination but also you know invites me to theirs and pushes me to you know to remember my responsibility to the reader because I'm writing for the readers and so often you know John and I the things that we're working together comes out of him saying what's on your mind or you know many times often we're having a drink and he goes write that up like you need to write that now you know like write that story and so a bunch of the stories have you know come from that an index of how many publications and many editors treat me a few weeks ago maybe I looked up a month ago I was like oh damn it my email is going to be overpacked." and someone's like what and it's like come next week come in a week after it's going to be murder I just got an email from a one world, and so the galleys for Tanahas's new book is out. So I know what's going to happen. And he goes, Come on. In the space of a week, over a hundred inquiries from different people. Hey, so I'm wondering, do you want to write about the new Tanahasi book? You know, or for example, when they announced this list of 29 writers, there was a mad rush from different people, but a mad rush to say, so listen, you know, I've been reading for the longest time and do you want to write about it's always something black. And so time and time again I'm seen just merely as a body. People can't get past my body. I'm not seen as a mind. So I've had people say, oh, write about this. Tense. I said, listen, I want to write about the new in a collection of Louis Gluck's poems. And they're like, oh, you're so funny. I said, no, I really want to write about the new collection of you know, the new Louis you know. No, and so over and over and over again, I'm reduced merely to a body. That time and again, like just about everything having to do with incarceration or, you know, um, you know, know, if it has the word "get in it" or you know, you know, black and black crime or like these are, I mean, I just get tons and tons. After a while, I said, I wonder if people think I'm doing like a sociology of crime. If I'm a sociologist, and so many editors, you know, can't get past my body and so many of them I will say no and occasionally I'll say yes to a piece and give them something that they weren't expecting and try to <laughs> to push them you know or sometimes I'm just plain frustrated and mischievous and so I'll write a piece for an editor and in it are all these like what's the, what's the term that I'm working like easter eggs like it's laced with like well there's no kind of like it's laced with insults so like I'll have like like they're responding to them and they have no clue so it's like oh I love this piece and like there are things in the piece you know mocking or like somebody will write to me and there was one recent editor who had suggested 14 different things and they were all black books and I kept saying no 
And I made a joke and I said, well, you know, I'm surprised he didn't ask me to write about souls of black folk to write introduction. And he goes, actually, we thought of that for you, but it just went into production. <laughs> and so I reckon and said, it's a wonder you know how to breed, which is my mischievous line from that Bob Dylan song, you know, eat it wind blowing this way, so I want to know how to breed. And he goes, oh yes, let's talk about like not breeding, like in you know, the Eric Garner, and it's like, but you know, all of which is to say is that this happens frequently, and so most times I just say no, and I just try to find an editor who will say, tell me, like John, tell me what's on your mind. Somebody who's like, I see a man, I see a man actually, you know, within this body, and I can surpass the body, and allow me to, you know, do it. And so sometimes it might be someone with a publication, you know, with um, seven subscribers, and so, you know, you'll turn it back to the Times, you know, you know, it is two million readers to say, no, I'd write for the person who has seven readers who will read me, but seven people who believe that I have a mind and they're willing to read a mind rather than a million and a half who are looking at a body. And so I have many times that the term of back at, you know, different, you know, wonderful financial opportunities because it came at, right. you know, too great a cost. There are other times I'll take the assignment and play with it and give them something that they weren't expecting and they go, oh, Maybe we will give it a loose Gluck's poems to write about. Mm. On that note, I should tell you that um, Diego's book that he's working on right now is about a poet. A poet who has disappeared. Who's disappeared. Yo cuando empecé a escribir, escribí un libro, mi primer libro, que es apócrifo. Uh, the first book that I wrote, which is based, is an apocryphal story, is a book of poetry. I was 18 years old. <laughs> and there was this editor who was uh, even more you know, pig-headed than I, I am and decided to publish these poems that were uh, terrible and uh, precocious ter you know, poems of mine. And so I met this poet, Samuel Loyola. Samuel Loyola. He was like a vagabond. But I read his poetry. That I just, he was a fantastic poet. He was an amazing poet. So I decided to leave behind poetry and to be more prosaic and to go to the other extreme and when I decided to search him out uh, to say uh, to thank him mm -hmm. I realized that he had disappeared a lot of people think that he died in the streets but I have um, evidence that I have I have trail a trail that I'm following and in fact I took a detective cor course in being a detective <laughs> and I suspect that he's in Spain with the underground Muslim in the underground Muslim uh, milieu <laughs> because in the very last piece of writing he left behind he has like an epigraph of um, Irani of a Persian uh, Iranian writer that he who knows God keeps quiet and he after that he disappeared mm -hmm. 
Que história! What a story! Well, I, oh man. Wow. Well, okay. Um, well, uh, it was terrific talking to all of you. Thank you for listening. Um, you might have some announcements. I think they'll sign books. Uh, if you have books by Hector, if you'd like them to sign copies of Freeman's, there's a copy of this. If you would like to read about the United States as it is, um, and uh, yeah, thank you for coming. Thank you. Thank you. You've been listening to the Skylight Books author reading series. Don't forget that you can listen to this and all of our other great podcasts at skylightbooks.com. Thanks again for stopping by, and we hope to see you soon.